Well, I want to speak this evening on the second commandment. Exodus 20, verse 4, following. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Well, last Tuesday we studied the first commandment, um, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And that commandment dealt with the object of our worship. We are to worship God and we are to worship God only. And this requires undivided loyalty to the only God. This second commandment deals with not so much the object of our worship, but how we worship God. How should we worship God? And God says his people are not to make images either of false gods nor images of the true God. Nothing should be crafted either in word or in any kind of other way. Nothing should be graven in heaven and earth or things under the earth in the water as an aid to the worship of God. They are not to worship God by the aid of images. And in worship, the true God, in the worship of the true God, the use of visual representations of the Lord is offensive to God. And it provokes his judgmental wrath here until the third and fourth generations as was mentioned here. So the essence of this second commandment relates, I think, first to the nature of God. It tells us something about the nature of God. And it tells us how the nature of the God that we worship determines the type of worship that he demands. And I believe what this second commandment teaches us tonight is God's people. And as, as I say, we're looking to this law, this moral law of God as our instruction in how to live the Christian life. It teaches us, and in, in the first place, a very important thing about the God who we worship. It teaches us first that the nature of God, the essential being of God, is spiritual he is a spiritual God, his God is a spirit, and he is invisible. And that there is nothing in the heavens above, there is nothing on the earth, and there's nothing in the waters below that corresponds with his nature. Nothing, therefore, can adequately represent him. The Lord God of <clears throat> that we worship, of course, is beyond definition and beyond description we know that the nearest the bible comes to a definition of god is um, 
when the Lord Jesus was speaking to that Samaritan woman in John's Gospel where he says God is spirit God is a spirit the Lord Jesus uh, says that God is essentially a spiritual being he's a being all of his own and he's distinct from the world and he's distinct and separate from everything he created and he has all the attributes what he really defines what a perfect spiritual being is he has all the attributes of a perfect spiritual being a pure self-conscious self-determining spirit in which there are no body parts where he has none of the properties which belong to matter to the things down here below he is a spirit <coughs> God is spirit he is invisible and he is undiscernible to human eyes to human hearing to human feeling to human sense and we, the only things we know about God are those things which he has chosen to reveal to us we would never know anything about God unless he decided to reveal himself to us he is beyond finding out He is pure spirit with qualities and powers that our physical brains can't take in. And they cannot compute God. And none of our, even the best of our technologies cannot uh, compute or discover what God is. He's beyond even our most advanced technologies and brains. This is the God we worship and the God we belong to. The Apostle Paul speaks of him as the king, eternal, immortal, invisible. And again in the same first epistle to Timothy, he calls God the king of kings, the lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in light, unapproachable, whom no man hath seen nor can see to whom be honour and power and glory this is the God that you and I worship tonight and this second commandment reminds us that because God is who he is and he is invisible and glorious and pure and, and pure spirit there's nothing that can that we could paint or make or sculpt that can represent him no image is, is adequate and then secondly this second commandment reminds us of the true nature of worship the nature of God determines the nature of worship you see you see, if, if God was a God of stone or wood, it would be a different kind of worship. But because God is pure spirit, then that determines the worship that is appropriate to our God. 
And due to the nature of God, his spirituality and invisibility, the worship of God must be spiritual so that it will correspond to his nature. Scripture emphasises the insult that God feels when we represent him by any outward form, by anything that is a resemblance of of the sun or the moon or the stars, things above or animals on the earth or, or fish or anything in the sea. As soon as we make a graven image, we are transferring to an image that which should be reserved for God alone. And what belongs to God alone are soul worship and adoration. Again, the Lord um, defines true worship to this in this conversation with the Samaritan woman. Um, God is a spirit. That's who God is. And therefore, what should a worship? And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So this, dear friends, this second commandment, this second commandment, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, and so on, is a very important matter indeed. Because many who take the name of Christian, who worship the God of the Bible, who say they do, they do so with the aid of graven images or images. There are even more, of course, in the world who, um, who worship false gods, other gods, through hideous, sometimes hideous idols, such as in Hinduism. But we're not talking so much about them tonight. But there are those who use images for the worship of the true God. And this is what this second commandment, I mean, this, this second commandment is forbidding all uh, graven images to, uh, to false gods, but... It must mean something different than the first commandment. And here it's saying, I believe, you shall not worship me as the true God through any image. A devout Roman Catholic, of course, would say, in relation to images, that you know, they would say, I'm worshipping the true God of the Bible but I'm doing that through this image, whatever it might be. This image is helping me to worship. The devout Greek Orthodox, for example, believer would say, I'm, 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 I'm not worshipping this icon, I'm worshipping God through this icon. They, they talk of icons being a window to God. We, we think again in the Roman Catholic Church that in, in Roman Catholic piety and liturgy, liturgy, a great deal of images, crucifixes, icons of Christ, his mother Mary, the angels and the saints and so on are used in public worship. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, second edition, point 2132 states... The Christian veneration of images is not contrary to the first commandment, 
which prescribes idols. Indeed, the honour rendered to an image passes to its prototype, and whoever venerates an image, an image venerates the person portrayed in it. The honour paid to sacred images is a respectful veneration, not the adoration due to God alone. So you see what the Roman Catholic thinking is. They say they do not worship the image, they venerate the image, and that it is a medium through which to worship God. They venerate images, the Catholic, Catholic would say, they worship God. And the Roman Catholics use several biblical arguments to justify the use of images, which I could, I won't rehearse them all now. But from our side, if you like, from, the, from a Protestant perspective, we need to remember that this second commandment is very clear and very specific. It is a command that God is not to be pictured or visually represented in any way whatsoever. Deuteronomy 4 verse 15 says, Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves. Deuteronomy 4.15, this is... This is looking back on, on how the law was given. It says, Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for ye saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire. So that's significant, you see. So God is saying, Thou shalt not make any graven image. And as the law is being given... He maintains his invisibility to the people. They saw no similitude. You didn't see God on Mount Sinai, Moses reminds them. Therefore you must not make an image of him. That is the prohibition. No image to be made of God. Now, we've got to be... We've got to... Um, be careful here because God is not telling Israel that no Israelite can engage in any artwork of any kind he's not saying you can't paint anything or sculpt anything um, indeed we know don't we that when God instructed his people to create to, to build a, the tabernacle um, he commands certain pieces of artwork to be part of the design. Pomegranates and things and, and all sorts of beautiful things. And even on, the, <clears throat> on top of the mercy seat, there were these winged cherubim that were crafted. Um, so God can't be saying it's sinful to never to engage in any kind of art. But what he is saying is that through art, through images, I, God, Yahweh, must not be represented. Now, some of what I'm going to be saying tonight may sound a bit like I'm on the fence because I don't know the answer to everything, <laughs> all the, every issue here. But I can just raise them, perhaps for us to think about. 
because there's a wide diversity of opinion, even in, reform, in the reformed world, about whether we should have any art or art in our church buildings. Um, you know, can we paint or sculpt biblical themes and events? And, and is that all right to be uh, on our church walls or in our church windows? There are all sorts of things that we need to think about. What about nativity scenes? Is that breaking the second commandment? Stained glass windows, I've already mentioned. What about taking it outside of the church? What about films, Jesus films, things like the Passion, films like The Passion of the Christ, in which an actor plays Jesus? Is that breaking the second commandment? I've lost count of the amount of reformed um, YouTube videos where I've seen clips from that film. So we need to be, you know, sometimes we're very inconsistent. I don't know, have all the answers, but I know that we are dreadfully inconsistent and all over the place when it comes to this second commandment. Um, now, what about children's Bibles? With pictures of Jesus, always looking like he's some kind of blonde-haired German. Of course, he wasn't even a white man at all. You know, most people think Jesus was a white man. So, these are some of the the things that are thrown up when we come to study this second commandment. And I will give some kinds of opinions as we go along. All I can say is that Puritan thought, um, particularly we could say English Puritan thought embodied, or I should say British Puritan thought, embodied in the Westminster Confessions, particularly the larger short of confession of faith, tended to believe that the second commandment prohibits all visual depictions of things like human animals and other things to be in church buildings. On the other hand, um, reformed believers of, of, of on the continent, continental reformed believers, um, they often in contrast, affirmed the propriety of art for use in church buildings. So both reformed, but with different views. So I don't have clear-cut answers for all these things. So from their perspective, um, it's argued that Scripture allows for images which, de which depict, for example, the humanity of Jesus as well as pictures of redemptive events and themes in church buildings. And indeed, I think, in the continental reform world, we, we even, we, even really from the beginning, there was more of a more emphasis paid on the actual church building than, than would be in the um, sort of Westminster reformed world. I'll come back to some of those things, but I want to make those issues, which are complicated, and contrast them with 
what we're the real guts, if you like, of what this commandment is prohibiting. By going back, really, to deal with this Roman Catholic position. You see, they justify the use of images in worship. They venerate images, which no, no, no one in, in the Reformed, in the Reformation, none of them said that. There was differences about art and, and aesthetics of church buildings, but no one believed it was right to venerate an image. Um, the Roman Catholics, of course, they, they point to such things as the tabernacle, um, saying, you know, well, God uh, commanded, even, even gave the Holy Spirit to, uh, um, was that Ahaziel and Aholia, but is that their names? Um, and gave them that skill to, to do all those things in the tabernacle. Um, and they point to such thing as the brazen serpent in the wilderness. You say, well, there you are. There's an example where the, 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 the people of Israel have been bitten by snakes and God tells them, uh, tells them to, to build this um, bronze image. And this, they look to this bronze image, this bronze snake, and they're healed. So there's an example the Roman Catholic would say, or the theologian would say, of God using images. Um, of course they often ignore the fact that this was this was a command of God whereas the second commandment is forbidding man to do these things well if God chooses to say to his people create an image well that's a different story of course and their argument is as I say is that there's a distinction between veneration and worship they say that the image is, is a vehicle through which to worship God. And remember that, unlike even, you know, um, some of the Lutheran churches or some of the Reformed continental churches which are more, go down more of the art route, the Roman Catholic Church takes it to a, a new level. They, have, they make images of God the Father painting God the Father in, in church windows, for example. There are not just crosses, which you find in some Reformed churches, there are crucifixes, with the Lord Jesus still on the cross. They worship Christ, they say, through the medium of the crucifix. So logically, at some level at least, although they deny their worshipping the image, the Roman Catholic Church is saying that an image of God somehow represents God and is in some way an aid to the worship of God. And it's hard, you can't really get around that. So let's just take that, um, and I don't believe that we need to, um, you know, doubt there. A, a devout Roman Catholic, I believe that that's what they would believe. They believe they're... They're not intending to worship a, a crucifix, for example. They're worshipping God through an image. But is that permissible? Um, well, let's come to the Bible in respect of that. And 
my, obviously I've, I would clearly say that the second commandment prohibits that but let's not worry about it for a second how does that work out in practice in the Bible how does it work out in practice in real life if you use an image as, as a way of which you venerate and as a way to get to God how does that work out in practice you see the reformers the reformers often said you know to the in respect to the Roman Catholic Church consider not what they say consider what they do because often there's a difference between what they say and what they do and we have an example of what happens when you go down this road uh, in scripture in, in exodus in fact when aaron made the golden calf when he made that golden bull calf in his heart aaron thought he was making a bull that would represent the strength of God. He was a man under great pressure. Um, Moses was taking ages coming down from the mountain. The people of God uh, were putting pressure on him. And it was never his intention to create a, a false God. He was, he was wanting to remind the people about the strength of God. He was trying, he, he, in fact, when he made the golden calf, he, he made an altar in front of it. And he said, you know, he was calling the people to the worship, not of the bull, but to, to, to Yahweh. It was going to be, that the idea was the people would venerate the bull calf and worship God. It would remind them, point them to God. Well, how did that work out? Aaron was a man of God. He would never have made, deliberately made a false God. But he tried to inspire the true worship of God through a representation of God. And it didn't work. And I'd argue it never does work. What happened? Well, in the minds of the people, the, the bull God of Egypt, which is really what Aaron was um, creating and copying, it suggested sexual matters since the bull... Um, symbolized potency and this led to an orgy it led to immorality the very opposite of what Aaron had intended and the people ended up worshipping the image these are your gods O Israel they said not, not Aaron it's in scripture in the AV it's very clear they said the people So pragmatically speaking, speaking, even if it's not the intention, and even if there is a cogent theological argument for the use of images, I believe it always leads to idolatry. You see, even the example that the Roman Catholic Church loves to raise of the, of the brazen serpent, and remember, God, that was God's initiative. It wasn't the Israelites' initiative. It was God said, make this brazen snake, serpent. Um, Numbers 21.8, make thee a brazen serpent. Um, even that ended up being a stumbling block for Israel. Um, later in our history, in 1 Kings 18, the people began to burn incense to this brazen image. And 
Hezekiah had to break it in pieces. Hezekiah break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. So you see, even there, um, Israel found a way to make uh, an image a god. So I think, therefore, on you know, and I'm only just speaking here in pragmatically. I believe we can refute the distinction the Roman Catholics make between the veneration of an image and the worship of God. In practice, and I think this is the wisdom of this second commandment, in practice, any image or representation of God obscures God's glory in some way and therefore dishonours God. A created, graven, material object or depiction, even if it's the sun or the moon, things that God made, or a star, they cannot represent even one aspect of God. And even the golden calf bull, meant to emphasise the strength of God, ended up doing nothing of the sort and ended up in, in, in total immorality. See, the problem with using images of God in Christian worship, and from my very Protestant heart, I would extend the same point to images of other things, such as saints and so on, is that it always reverses, it always reverses the direction of true religion. See, true religion is a man or woman letting himself be used by God for God's purposes. Just, just being available to God. Here I am, God. I'm yours. Use me, Lord. That's the, that's the true direction of true religion. The danger of the use of images is that the worshipper drags God down to the level of a tool which he uses for his purpose. See, instead of God using us for his purpose, we, we, we use God for our purpose. If we, if we worship him, or if we venerate, let's be generous, if we venerate an image. The deity is made to do man's bidding. And this, this is really magic, what magic is, pagan magic. Um... In magic, in the, in the worshipper's mind, over time, the powers of, of the deity are stored up in the image. And the image, although it was, that was never the original intention, over time, um, the image becomes like a second god beside the true god. And in the end, the image becomes a rival and a substitute for the true God. Now, as I say, I'm I'll be, with no need for us to be ungenerous. That is probably never the intention. But it's what happens. You see, there's a way of that happening also. It's almost a Protestant version of it, isn't it? Or an evangelical version of it. We don't have images, of course, but 
We like to bring God down, make him a tool. God, God's, God's there for us. <laughs> we bring him down to our level. Um, we, we, we can't conceive of him, so we, 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 we cut his, we, we, we reduce his attributes in a way and, and bring him, make him small so that we can conceive of him and we just use God and he's, he's kind of a shopping a sort of supermarket Christianity I'll, I'll have that bit and I'll have this bit and we just use our religion as a way of, of getting through life so none of us are immune to this uh, temptation of what I would call pagan magic. Using God, um, using God for our purposes rather than allowing him to use us for his purpose. So, yeah, the Roman Catholic use of images of God. Of course, not all images of in the Roman Catholic Church are of God. What about the other images, other depictions of Bible scenes and so on? So, as I say, some of those we would see in some Reformed churches, particularly abroad. So how do we deal with that? Well, this question needs to be set in the context of, the, of, of really two... Uh, Protestant views of worship and remember this second commandment is instructing the people of God how to worship this God who is spirit there are two different principles within the Protestant world if you like um, of how to interpret really this second commandment and the consequences for church life are quite significant. The two different views or two different principles, are, are, don't worry about the names, but I'll explain them. The first is the regulative principle of worship, and the second is the normative principle of worship, and I'll explain what that means. These are two contrasting views. The regulative principle of worship states that God has set the bounds and gives the basic patterns for worship in his church and that we are to do what God has commanded. The normative principle, in contrast, teaches that whatever is not expressly forbidden in Scripture is permissible. Does that make sense? Now, when it comes to the regulative principle of worship, the reformers, particularly John Calvin and the 17th century Puritans, in contrast to the 16th century Puritans, emphasise that when it comes to Christian worship, a general obedience to scripture is insufficient. By which I mean normally, you know, there's nothing in the Bible I can turn to, you know, say, if, say if I'm, as I did consider at one point, Shall I join the Dulverton cricket team? Is it a way of making non-Christian friends and things? There's no, I can't turn to any verse where it says it's okay for Rod Mitchell to join the Dulverton cricket team. 
we have to grow up and we have to apply the principles to all these things. That's how we normally deal with life. But John Calvin and, and the Puritans said when it comes to Christian worship, public Christian worship, that a general obedience to scripture in that concept, context is insufficient. They taught that there is a specific prescription governing how God should be worshipped corporately. In public worship, in other words, God has made specific requirements and we are not free to add to them and we're not free to subtract from them. John Calvin wrote, God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by his word. We can blame John Calvin for the regulative principle of worship. The Westminster Confession of Faith and copied word for word by the London Baptist Confession states, the acceptable way of worshipping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations or devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. Now, of course, there are many churches which call themselves Reformed churches that don't even know there's such a thing as a, a regulative principle of worship. They'll hold to a, one of the confessions and not know what's in it. But what I want to emphasise is that if we are serious about our confession, it has consequences. Um, the normative, let me, let me first of all go back, <coughs> just briefly explain the other principle, the normative principle of worship. In contrast, as I say, that what, what that principle states is that whatever is not prohibited in scripture is permitted in worship. Um, you know, let's, let's be, be ridiculous. No, no church is going to you know, allow, well, there are some actually, but any, any sort of sane church is not going to allow a circus <laughs> on Sunday morning. So let's not take it to extremes. But basically they would say, where scripture is silent on the use of certain things in church, they can be used. You know, interviewing the guest speaker as if he's on TV with a microphone, um, drama sketches and PowerPoint presentations and all these things. They're not, they're not forbidden, they would say, in Scripture. Therefore, they're permissible. And obviously that's just a couple of examples. Well, what I want to say is that this is a difficult area. You could probably tell where I fall down. But, but there is a great deal of inconsistency, I'm afraid, by those who hold, or are supposed to hold, to the regulative principle of worship. Um, I'll give you one example. How many Reformed ch churches almost exclusively sing hymns when we are expressly ex instructed in Scripture 
to teach and admonish one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Now there are certain reformed churches in Scotland where they sing nothing but psalms. And they're often heavily criticised for that. But I think a far bigger problem are churches where they exclusively sing hymns and never sing psalms. So we, we're, we, we can be all over the place with this. <clears throat> often we don't even have a, def, a definition for spiritual songs. You know, what are spiritual songs? It's something. I'm just pointing out the difficulties and the inconsistencies, but I'm going to end up saying, despite the fact I don't know the answer to many of these things, I do believe that Scripture teaches a regulative principle of worship. And the only sure way of maintaining purity in the corporate worship of God is to maintain that. Um... You see, bringing this back to our subject tonight, the Reformers and the Puritans, they applied this uh, regulative principle of worship to things like holy days, to the use of the Psalter. Um, there was some difference with the Continental Reformed, as I've said, about biblical art. But there was a very clear and firm rejection of the use of images in worship by Knox and Zwingli and Calvin and so on. You know, and we, 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 we clearly do, but we publicly state you know, that we are opposed to any veneration of any image in, in Christian worship. The Heidelberg Catechism says, God neither can nor may be visibly represented. And that we must not be wiser than God, who will not have his people taught by dumb images but by the living preaching of his word. We're not to make an image of God the Father, nor, I believe, are we to make an image of God the Son, and certainly not of God the Holy Spirit. And surely it's, it's significant that no physical description of the Lord Jesus was given in the Gospels. Now, we can read into some things, like... Um, the Lord Jesus probably looking a lot older than he really was. The Pharisees said, Thou art not yet 50 years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? So we can read into that and say maybe he looked a lot older than his years. But we're not given any physical description, and that would have been perfectly possible. Those who hold to the regulative principle of worship and every church which subscribes either to the Westminster Confession or the London Baptist Confession are obliged to say that we may worship God only in the way that he has authorised. And that goes way beyond images. So those churches holding to this principle, the first question we ask is whether God is not, <clears throat> whether God has prohibited something, so say we have somebody join us and say, oh, wouldn't it be great if we did this in the meeting or that in the meeting? And we'd have to consider, you no, know, we'd listen, obviously, but it wouldn't be, the first question wouldn't be, is it, is it prohibited in the Bible? The first question would be, is it 
prescribed? Is it authorised? That's the difference in the application of these two different principles. <clears throat> and this is precisely what our confession states. Um, question and answer 109. The sins forbidden in the second commandment are all devising, counselling, commanding, using and any wise approving any religious worship not instituted by God himself. The making of any representation of God, of all or any of the three persons, either inwardly in our mind or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever, or worshipping of it or God in it or by it. The making of any representation of feigned deities and all worship of them or service belonging to them. All superstitious devices corrupting the worship of God, adding to it or taking from it, whether invented and taken up of ourselves or received by tradition from others. Though under the title of antiquity, custom, devotion, good, intent or any other pretense whatsoever, simony, sacrilege, all neglect, contempt, hindering and opposing the worship and ordinances which God hath appointed. Notice that our confession states that the second commandment forbids any representation of God either inwardly in our mind or outwardly. You see that the birth of an idol is, it always begins in the mind of a man. We are called to worship God as his redeemed people and we are to worship God in one way and one way only as he has revealed himself in the scriptures. We're not to, we're not to be like some churches will say, get in a circle and, and close your eyes and just imagine the Father giving you a hug. You know, let's, let's all visualise God together. That, that, that's breaking the second commandment. Our personal as well as our corporate worship has to be governed by the word of God and our inward images of God. You know, even if we never get out a chisel from the, from the workshop, even if we never get the paintbrush out, even if we, we don't get, go on our computer and do something clever, which I can't do, and, and generate an image of God, even if we do none of those things, even if it's just in our mind, then God says, you, you have broken this second commandment. Colvin, John Calvin famously in his Institutes wrote, hence we infer that the human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forge of idols. A forge, for those who don't know, is, is where the blacksmith works, <laughs> where, where he he churns out the swords and the and the, uh, the pickaxes and all the things that the village need it needed. Uh, and the human mind is like a blacksmith, which is creating idol after idol after idol. And he went on to write, <clears throat> "The human mind, stuffed as it is with presumptuous rashness." dares to imagine a God suited to its capacity. That's what I was saying earlier. That's what we'll do if we're not careful. We'll, 
will imagine a God suited to our capacity. We'll bring God down so that we can cope with him. As it labours under dullness, nay, is sunk in the grossest ignorance, it substitutes vanity and an empty phantom in the place of God. To these evils another is added. The God whom man has thus conceived inwardly, he attempts to embody outwardly. So whether it's physical or just uh, spiritually speaking, we will, the God we imagine we will create externally. That's the God we'll worship. So what's the antidote in all this in the last 30 seconds? Well, it's to be saturated, isn't it, with the word of God. God has revealed himself not in the human imagination, but in the scriptures. Um, we must think of him spiritually, thinking of his holiness, justice and goodness. And of course, we must remember, most importantly, that we must conceive of God as he is in Christ. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is the brightness of, the, um, of his glory and the express image, the express icon, the icon, the express icon of his person. It's only one real icon. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. Let us not worship any other God, create any other God, venerate any image. Let us worship the God of the Bible and go forward together. Amen. Feel free to contact us at Sovereign Grace Church in Tiverton. Email us at grace2seekers at gmail.com. That's grace2seekers at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can visit our website at www.sovereigngracereformedchurch.co.uk